0: Lord, we are grateful for that. So I pray that you'd help me to cling to the cross and what it means. Jesus, help me to cling to you. Lord, help North Hills to cling to you. Lord, help us to look to you in the midst of strife. Help us to look to you in the midst of difficulty. Lord, when all hope seems lost, remind us that we have hope in you. So God, I pray for your people this morning that you would open our hearts and open our minds to your word. God, that we would listen well and Lord, that we would walk away changed. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.
1: There's an optical illusion that's easy to fall for, even if you know the trick. The more distant you are from other people, the more invulnerable they appear. You see yourself as you are, with your flaws just as clear as your successes. But you see most other people on their terms, only from the side they present to the world. And at first glance they've got everything figured out. With everything set in stone. Securely embedded in their community. Wrapped up with their loved ones. Their lives like a finished work of art. But it's only just a trick of perspective. Because you can't see the cracks from so far away. How insecure their footing. How malleable they really are. How many years of effort went into shaping their persona into something unacceptable? How many other hands it took to build their lives, which are still only ever a work in progress? It's the kind of basic human vulnerability that we'd all find familiar, but is still somehow surprising when we notice it in others. It's an open question why we have such public confidence and such private doubts. Maybe that contradiction is what keeps us moving, wanting to be more than what we are and never be satisfied. Maybe it lets us keep our distance to avoid too much friction as we brush past each other. Or maybe it's what draws us together, the only irreplaceable thing we still need each other for. Just one last excuse to keep stopping by, so we can prop each other up and remind ourselves that nothing is set in stone, not even who we are we pretend to be
0: so many thoughts about brokenness and maybe you're sitting here this this morning going I can't wait till we get done with this because I'm tired of thinking about how broken I am how weak I am you know, but, but over the last three weeks, we've been looking at brokenness and, and the fact that, that we're often unwilling to allow other people to see that brokenness in us because we think that somehow we're protecting ourselves or, or, or maintaining this position of strength in our culture. And, and really, that's a really bad place for us to be, especially as Christians. Because God's word says that when we are weak, then we are strong because then we're not living in and amongst ourselves, but we're living in the strength of Jesus Christ. And that's really where he wants us to be. Brokenness is caused by sin, it's caused by weaknesses, it's caused by inadequacies that we have, just natural things that we're not able to do, and that's okay, we've talked about that. We've also talked about the fact that we have cracks, and that God wants to fill those cracks, just as he, in this process that's made to create these amazing pieces of art, really, in this pottery that we saw that first Sunday. And then there's this idea, and we looked at it the very first week, that we are to delight in those weaknesses. I don't know, I feel really good today. I don't know what it is. I think, it's, I think it's in the last three weeks, finally being able to admit to myself personally that I have weaknesses and there's things that I can't do. And there's things that I really shouldn't do. And that I can trust God to do what God says that he will do and that's to move in the hearts and minds of people and, and And he wants me to be faithful in bringing the word on a Sunday morning and to trust him with the rest of the results and so this morning I bring you something that he's given me and I lay it at his feet and at your feet and what he wants to do with it in your life he's going to do. There is a sense of relief that comes with making that acknowledgement and really realizing that. Something else that I've realized this week as I've looked to the last year and a half to two years, two years really, um, that I've really struggled with some things, um, difficult things, not necessarily for me personally, but in the lives of other people around me, and, and, and they've been devastating and hard. And, and I've come to the conclusion that I want life today. I want happiness today. I want reconciliation today. I want all of these things that I want, and I want them today. But what really happens is, as I look back at two years ago, it is today today. But when I wanted it today, two years ago, it wasn't going to happen. It's taken God two years to do the work and to do the things that he's wanted to in the lives of the people that are a part of these situations that bring us to today. And it's nothing short of a, mar- a miracle. Nothing short of a miracle what God does in our lives. I mean, I, I know specific things in people's lives here in this very room, and, and we can look back at some things, and we can look, look where we were one day and where we are today, and you just got to go, Wow. God did a miracle. A miracle. And that takes time, and we hate time. We hate silence in a church service. We hate things that take a lot of time. Because we want it today. You know, our pride and our sinfulness fights us, fights our desire and our attempts to be honest about who we are with other people, don't they? I don't want anybody to think I'm weak. We've also seen how intimately God knows us and understands us and wants to help us, right? He's not a Lord who just says, well, you know, oh, did something wrong? Take that. You know, like a a grade school kid, boy, generally, standing next to an anthill, right? Let's stir it up a little bit. You know, I've often wondered... You know, when, like when you drive over an anthill with the mower, right? And it's like instantly they're rebuilding it. You would think that an ant would just take some time and think, you know, is this a wise thing to do to rebuild this in this place? You know, but oh no, they immediately go right after it and it's like carrying pebbles, carrying pebbles. I don't know, that was just came out of nowhere actually. Brokenness, broken together. We don't like it. We don't want to be broken together. But when we are... We are the people of God, and we are in the very place that he wants us to be. We know brokenness all too well, don't we? Broken families, broken bodies, broken jobs, broken attitudes, broken banks. We're often just broke, aren't we? And I'm just broke. Yeah. Yeah, in more ways than one. There was a couple's lawnmower was broken, and the wife kept hinting to her husband that he should fix it. He wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it. Finally, one day, she thought she was going to prove her point. So when he came home from work, he found her sitting out in the middle of the yard with a pair of scissors, cutting grass wildly. He stared at her for a a few minutes, and then he went in the house. And shortly after, he came out of the house with a toothbrush, and he says, hey, honey, when you're done mowing the lawn, why don't you sweep the walks, too? (laughs) Doctor said he'll be able to walk again, (laughs) uh, albeit with a limp. You know, we're broke, right? We're broken. We experience brokenness on so many different levels and from the small bump in the road to something so devastating that we can't see any way to overcome it. And maybe you're somewhere along that continuum today. Brokenness that, doesn't, that does its best to completely remove the hope that we have in life. Now, it's been said that human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, and four minutes without air, but we cannot live four seconds without hope. What is it that destroys the hope in you? What is it that destroys the hope in people? According to the dictionary, hope is a feeling. Um, It says that hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best, you know, to give hope or it's a very positive thing. Um, uh, Hope is a feeling, uh, hope is a particular instance of this feeling, like when you have the hope of winning. It's just this feeling that you have, right? It, It says that hope is grounds for this feeling in a particular instance a person or thing in which expectations are centered. I think that one, number four, should be number one because that's the hope that we're talking about. I'm not talking about hope that is a feeling and, and this is a feeling that we have but that, that feeling comes from the hope that we have in someone and that's Jesus Christ. We've been focusing on him all morning this morning. That is the foundation, and it is a foundation stronger than anything we could ever experience. That is a foundation that comes from the creator of the universe, the one who has power over everything. Hopelessness comes from situations in life where we think the outcome will be bad, or that that there's no outcome that we would ever want to see out of this particular situation the loss of a job for instance or the prospect of financial trouble I've talked to people this week who've lost jobs and there's the prospect of of the other spouse losing their job as well and so then what they're thinking where is the hope in this situation that's difficult. It, can, it comes with discouragement and sadness, fear. It occurs when we lose sight of the foundation. A husband has an affair or a wife has an affair. The amount of hurt that's caused by those decisions is unbearable. the the feeling of hope and trust that was once felt in the relationship, it's gone, and in that moment, it seems impossible that the marriage could survive. In fact, one of the, of the, 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 the mates in the couple might even say, why would I even want this to survive? But let me tell you, there is hope even in that situation. If your eyes are on the foundation... And not yourself or your humanity. I mean, betrayal. How, How could trust return? Sadness, pain, anger, fear. If you've been in that position, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I don't know where you are in that situation. You could be a couple years past that and you're going, Man, look what God did. It's an amazing thing. Or you could be in the middle of it or in the beginning of it going, experiencing all of that fear and all of that sadness and all of that anger. How could there even be hope for the future? The loss of all we have based our security on. That creates hopelessness in our culture. The market crashes and your retirement fund is gone overnight. What now? A rancher. Loses his herd in a bad blizzard. This happened years and years ago in South Dakota, I believe. His whole life was based on that herd. And in the pain and in the fear of the loss, he loses all hope and he ends it. He commits suicide. Because he had put all of his hope in something material. Cancer hits your family, or a close friend, a father dies suddenly, or a son or daughter is killed in a car crash. All hope in that moment seems lost. How could I even go on? Where, where is the hope? Early in the morning, last September, Scott Westerhouse from Platt, South Dakota, killed his wife, four children, and himself with a shotgun before 5.30 in the morning. Before he killed himself, he set the house on fire, Hours earlier, Scott, who was business manager for Mid-Central Educational Cooperative, learned that South Dakota officials would not be renewing a $4.3 million contract that the co-op had with the state due to problems in documenting expenses. I have no idea what his involvement is. It must have been pretty severe. And he felt like there was no hope. There is no way out. There is there is no way this could turn out good for me. And in that hopelessness, in that state of darkness. He not only ends his own life, but he takes his whole family. Hopelessness. We have neighbors that are experiencing it, not to that degree, obviously, but, but they're feeling like life is pretty hopeless. What do we have to offer them? We're going we're to look at two passages this morning where we see where the true hope, everlasting hope, hope that supersedes any brokenness or problem or hurdle that would ever come against us, where that comes from? It comes from Jesus Christ. It's, it's from our God and Creator. It's in Him that we have hope. Outside of Him, we have none. Got to remember that. Outside of Christ, our hope is founded on luck on humanity, on material things, or government. And those things will always disappoint. If not today, tomorrow. Or the next week. Those things are the fertile soil in which future hopelessness is grown when we put our trust in those things. So we're going to look at two passages. Turn with me to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, if you didn't bring a Bible, grab one from underneath the seat or on top of the seat next to you, it's page 240, 240 in the Bibles under the seats, Judges chapter 7. Gideon and the nation of Israel are facing an incredible challenge. And it's not just a few guys that their army is facing. Judges chapter 7, look at verse 12 with me. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. That's a big army. That's a lot of men. Can you imagine standing up on a hillside looking, maybe you're on Laramie Peak and you're looking down at the valley of Goshen and it's just full of people, military men. I don't know how many thousands you could fit. But, but, you know, in this part of the country, we know what it's like at times to drive through a field or down a dirt road and have grasshoppers, like, all over, right? You couldn't even begin to count them. That's what this army is like. Now, here's the, here's the thing. God wants them to be successful. God wants to help the people of, of Israel and the nation. He wants them to win the battle. Well, and, and in fact, that's point number one. God wants us to put our hope in him, not ourselves. He wants us to win at life. He wants us to have hope in life. Let's start in verse one. This is how the account goes. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of, of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the, the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Gideon is there with 32,000 men. And on the other side of the hill, or whatever the, the geographical location is, there is an army bigger than you can count. I'm sure with 32,000 men, Gideon was thinking, there ain't no way. And what does God say? Guess what, Gideon? Your army's too big. It's not going to work for me. Well, let's just take a hopeless situation and make it even more hopeless, right? I mean, that's essentially what God is doing in the eyes of men. And how often do we see this concept in the Bible? We've been talking about it for three weeks. We are strong when we're weak. Why? Because that's when God's strength comes through. That's when we're relying on him. That, that's when his power is doing the work. That's where he wants us to be. He wants Israel to win, but he doesn't want them to win in their strength, even if they could. Why? Why? Because then they would boast in their own strength. Ah, wow, look what we did. God doesn't want that for you and for me and for our church. God doesn't want that for the family of God all over the planet Earth. He doesn't want us to go, yeah, look how good we are. He wants us to put our strength in him. So God says, do this, verse 3. Announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left. So there's 10,000 left now to face an army that is more than you could count. And I'm sure that if those 10,000 weren't trembling before, they're trembling now. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Whoa, wait a minute. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out there for you. I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So out of 10,000, he saves 300. 300. Put another 100 in this room and that's the army. That's it. I cannot even imagine the hopelessness. I I mean, I'm sure Gideon has great faith, but, but I'm sure he's he 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 has the real realist bent too in himself so gideon sent the rest of the israelites verse 8 home but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others now the camp of midian lay below him in the valley and during the night that night the lord said to gideon this is interesting to me if there's any fear in gideon god is going to dispel it right now he says, get up, go down against, against the camp because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. Verse 13, Gideon arrived, just a man, just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. You see, God is reminding Gideon that he is for him, he wants them to win, and they will win. He just wants himself to get the credit, not the Israelites. That's often the place where God puts us. Sometimes we find ourselves there. Sometimes we make decisions that put us in that place. Sometimes God in his power puts us there. But it's to put us in a place where we will admit and surrender ourselves completely to him so that he can get the glory and not us. So when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and worshiped. He he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands, dividing the 300 men into three companies. I wonder what this would have... Little blips on the outside edges of this just big, giant field full of military men and more camels than you can count. So they're in groups of hundreds, Three hundred. He places trumpets and empty jars in their hands and torches inside. And he says, Watch me. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands And the three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, they didn't even attack. All the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. Total chaos ensues in the Midianite camp. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah toward Zerah, zerah as far as the border of Abel-Meholah near Tabith. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all manasseh were called out and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth-berah, so, all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed them at the rock of Oreb and Zeb, at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Period. God won the battle. God won the battle. And whatever brokenness is in your life, whatever weaknesses you have, God will win the battle. God will win it. If you will surrender to him, he will win it. If you try in your own strength and your own pace to accomplish what you think you need to accomplish and it's opposed to what God wants in your life, you'll you'll continue in a state of exhaustion and eventually hopelessness. We see this story over and over and over and over again in scripture, don't we? And we see it over and over and over and over in our lives, too, don't we? Yeah, we do. But Pastor Dave, you might be thinking to yourself, my situation isn't in the Bible, it's in my life. I'm different than all of the Israelites somehow. Baloney! You're a human, red-blooded being, just like all of the Israelites were. God cares just as much for you as he did for the Israelites. So, you may be asking, well, what do I do? I'm not going to go stand, you know, around my family with a torch and a, and a jar and break it and blow a trumpet. What do I do? What is God calling me to do? Well, I think the first question that you need to answer is this. Has God ever done anything for you before? Has God ever worked in your life before? Because these things add up in the life of Gideon and in the life of the Israelites, God brought them up out of Egypt. God God saved them in supernatural ways. He parted the Red Sea. He did amazing things for them. They cried and whined and complained. God forgave them. God punished them. God forgave them. They, They march around a city and blow trumpets, and what happens? The walls come down. God does the work. Has he ever given anyone close to you victory? Have you ever seen God work in anybody else's life? Yeah, I have. Now, there are many in this room today that have experienced the process of lost hope to restoration. And I have talked to people. And, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to get a person... To not just admit that they're weak or that they've been hopeless or that they've gone through this process, but then to actually put it on paper and stand up in front of the church and say, this is where I was and this is what happened to me. So I'm going to do something that's really risky this morning. I want you to think of where you are at today in in your life. And, and, And it might be a little bit stressful for you, but, but I, I want you to live on the edge a little bit this morning. I want you to think throughout your life, and maybe it's just here recently, if there has ever been something that you have seen God do that has restored your hope. You were hopeless, but God returned you to a place of hope. You, you, you after the fact, you looked back and you went, God, you did that. That was not me, that was all you. And, and I want to thank you for that. It, it, it may make you a little nervous, but here's, when I, when I count to three, if that's ever happened to you, I'm going to ask that you would stand up right where you're sitting. Okay, so I want you to think about that. You, you experienced anger, you experienced hurt, you experienced fear, and all of the things that went with that. But God did an amazing thing and he restored whatever or is in the process of restoring whatever it was that was broken. He, and and he, he brought back, he, he, he took that hopeless feeling and he replaced it with hope. It was you facing tens of thousands of warriors with only 300, yet God won the day. If that's you, I want you to stand right now. One, two, three, stand. If that's ever happened to you. Now, if you're sitting or you want to stand and you can't, look around you. Now, some of these people, and I know you, it's been in the last six months. It's been in the last year. God is still working. God is still doing what he did in the Old Testament. Today. And when we get to a place of hopelessness, we need to remember the people that we saw standing here. Because just as he has done it in the past and you somehow get to that place where there's there's that hopeless feeling again, you need to look back on this day and you need to say, no, there is hope in Christ. I need to refocus myself to the foundation. Because God is trying to show me here that it's him, not me. That's where we need to be. In our marriages, in our relationships, in our jobs, with our families. It may take two years. But he's working. To him be the glory. Let's give God a hand right now. Go ahead and sit. Thank you. When hope seems lost, we trust our God, not ourselves. We call out on God just as David did in Psalm 116 Oh Lord, save me. And He will. He may need to break us first, but He will. So God wants us to put our hope in him, not ourselves. The second passage I want to look at this morning is in the New Testament. It's the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, page 994, if you have a pew Bible. Mark chapter 5. As always, I probably should have picked one of these and not done them both, but But they were both just so powerful in my life this week. Mark chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in, in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And Jesus' response to that was to go with him. Jesus said, okay, let's go. And they, they began to go, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. So many, so many interactions that we have with Jesus are in prayer are that way today, aren't they? We call out to him. We cry out to him. We communicate with him. We see, the be, we see him beginning to answer, even, and come alongside us. Then something happens in this account, which is interesting to me. Uh, Verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Then she heard about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. A miraculous power leaves Jesus and goes into her and heals her. She tried everything. Doctors. All of her money. Nothing worked. And she thought, if I, it, she had the faith that if I could just touch him, I would be healed. And it, and it happens. And Jesus stops. This is the part of the story that's interesting to me. Jesus stops. And of of course he knew what happened. But in the words he says out loud are for all the people around him. But look at verse 30. At once Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? And everybody's going, Are you kidding Jesus, you're in the midst of a crowd. It's it's like the Mexico City subway at rush hour. There's no way you could help but touch people. That's what his disciples said, verse 31. Now, remember, we've got a father whose daughter is dying, right? And Jesus stops on his way to save her, to heal her. And he calls out to the crowd. It says, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And I'm guessing I would be, if I was the father of, if I was Jairus, I would be twiddling my thumbs. I would be stomping my feet saying, Jesus, look at your watch. Come on, quit dilly-dallying here. We got to go. I mean, this woman has been suffering for twelve years. You think another day's gonna hurt her? That's what I would be thinking. And then and then and then what I was thinking would just be confirmed in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said, Why bother the teacher anymore? All hope is lost now. It's over. If the ambulance hadn't had to stop at the crossing for the railroad train, for the train to go by, this person might have lived. That's how I would be feeling at the moment. It seems hopeless. Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever thought this situation, it's hopeless. There's no way that anything good could come out of this. Again, I want to remind you this morning that that feeling as a Christ follower is hogwash. It's not true. There is no such thing as hopelessness in the kingdom of God. No such thing. And Jesus' words are point number two this morning. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. Believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. In verse 37, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, for whatever reason. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion. With people crying and wailing loudly, he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Essentially, Jesus is saying, even though this situation seems hopeless to you, trust me, with me, it's not. And what is the people's response? They laugh at him. She's not sleeping. Look at her. Her body is cold. She's blue. She's dead. I guess Jesus is really saying, no, she's just mostly dead. Right? That's <laughs> well, just so amazing. They laugh. It, Jesus puts them all out, and I like the way that it, it says that He put them all out. I don't know if he had to use a whip or what, but he put them all out of the house. And he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, get up immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished, and wouldn't we be too? He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat, which he did often when he did miracles. You see, Jesus had the power to do anything. He could have healed the girl even at a spoken word while he was a distance away, but he didn't. Life, life proceeded to, to be lived along this timeline, and it was in that process that Jairus' faith was built up. In, in some ways, it was, it was kind of broken down at first. He was in a, a place of weakness and vulnerability, and then he saw God work. And to God went the glory. And, and, and And it's the same way for you and for me. In any situation where we think hope is lost and we surrender it before him, it may not be today. It may not be in six months. It may not be in a year. Trust me. Two years later, I look back and go, wow, look what God did. Look what God did. And it's because I trusted him. Sometimes kicking and screaming. But he knows you. He knows me. He's gracious. And he continues to work. Here's the bottom line for this. In Christ we have hope. Outside of Christ there is none. May that ring in our ears this week. In Christ we have hope. Outside of him there is none. Now, a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that it's important for us to stay plugged in. And how do we do that? You know, it's, it's, conver- it's just like staying plugged in with your spouse or your family or with friends. It's, it's ongoing conversations. It's, it's sharing pictures on Facebook. It's, it's emailing. It's, it's, it's visiting. It's talking. It's all of those things. And there's something that, and it was especially powerful to me this morning. Um, I, would, I could have read it and it could have been the message too, the, the devotion. I, I get them every day in my email um, and I want to put this up here in case you 're looking for something that 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 would that you could read on a daily basis. It takes anywhere from five to ten minutes to read it and and it 's just sometimes it 's powerful sometimes it 's just like oh, that was pretty lame i mean honestly um, they 're not all great but but many of them are and it 's a daily devotion um, and here 's the address if you want to write it down. I wish i 'd put it in your notes because it's it 's quite long but um, and if you write it down wrong and you can't get to the website, message me this week and, and I'll get it to you. But these come to your, your, your email inbox once a day and are a great way to, to help focus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, for, uh, thank you for being a God of hope and a God of process. And Lord, I pray that that for all of us here this morning, I, I know that you had a specific message and have spoken to all of our hearts in a specific way this morning. And I pray that these two passages and the two points would just resonate with us this week and that you would continue to teach us and we would continue to surrender and we would continue to be a people of hope. Personally, with those around us, with our community. Because Lord, there's a lot of hopelessness out there. Help us to be okay with admitting that we're weak and broken. And next week, Father, as we talk about what that looks like in a community, in specific ways, thank you. And Lord, we want to, as, as we, as we uh, worship you with the giving of our gifts and our tithes this morning, as the plates are passed and. Father, as we, we lift this, this song up to you this morning, to you be the glory, to you be the glory, because in Christ there's hope. In, without Christ we have none. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on up, guys.
2: Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation purchased of God. Born of His Spirit. Washed in His blood. This is my story. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my side. Angels descending, bring from above. Of mercy, whispers of love. this is my story.